0: scripture verse today is from Colossians thirty-one, twelve through 17. So as those who have been chosen by God holy and beloved but on the, put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you also so also should you. Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, may your word do that heart-transforming work. Change us as we encounter you in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a certain type of story that we keep retelling as a culture. It's a type of story that must have something going for it. It seems to strike a chord somewhere, both with us and with people all over the world, because books that contain it frequently become beloved global bestsellers. These stories revolve around a poor boy who is chosen to inherit a great chocolate factory, or a poor girl who is destined to bring down an evil oppressive government, or an orphan who lives under the cupboard, in the cupboard, under the stairs, but who is unknowingly a wizard with a great destiny, or a simple hobbit of the Shire, chosen to undertake a mission to destroy the power of the Dark Lord. All these stories and many more have the same theme. We call this theme the Chosen One motif. The Chosen One motif is found in some of the most popular stories in the world The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Percy Jackson, The Hunger Games, The Matrix. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Wheel of Time, and the list goes on and on. I'm sure it's somewhere in the Marvel cinematic universe, but it's all become just too much to keep up with anymore. Uh, The chosen one motif usually begins with a person who appears very average, like a Bilbo Baggins, or maybe even someone who's below average, someone in extreme poverty, like Charlie Bucket, or a particular puny person in stature like steve rogers before he becomes captain america as the story's told something happens the, something happens to this unassuming person their hidden potential is unlocked their real identity is revealed you're a wizard harry you're the chosen one anakin <laughs> the one who will bring balance bilbo was meant to find the ring in which case, Frodo, you were meant to have it. There's a sense of great destiny surrounding such characters and filling the stories that we keep telling and watching and writing. And why is that? I'm sure the great psychoanalyst of the 1960s would tell us that we love these stories because they satisfy some deep urge. They're about urges in the 1960s for some reason. Some deep urge within us. We love these stories because deep down, they reflect who we want to be. We look common, but we want to be special. We were the last picked for the team, and so we dream of being the chosen one. In our humdrum lives, we long for a sense of destiny. We want our lives to matter. We want to have a calling, a higher calling upon us. We want to be up in some greater story. We resonate so much with the chosen one motif because it appeals directly to a primordial desire that has been hardwired in us. There's a deep yearning in us that spans across cultures and across human history. And that's why we love to tell these stories. I don't think I want to argue with a psychologist that tells us that these stories scratch a particular itch that we have. I don't deny that the itch is there, but I want to know, why do we have that itch in the first place? I want to push deeper and ask, why do I find this desire hardwired in myself? I don't deny the attraction, but why am I drawn to this type of story? Why am i drawn to stories about the chosen one? Could it be it's because God hardwired this desire in me? We're attracted to these type of stories because they reflect something that is actually true about the world. Something that is actually true about the way God designed things. Deep down we want to be chosen. For a higher purpose, because that's actually the reality of the world we live in. Our desires didn't create that reality. God created it. My deep desires and love for stories about a chosen one don't provide a way of me escaping from my reality. They point me to reality. They point me to a God Who says that he has chosen me. That he has chosen the poor, the weak, the simple, the unimpressive to be his own. He has chosen the Charlie Buckets of the world to be rich in faith. And inherit a grand prize beyond their wildest dreams. This is what Paul says when we come to Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. Look with me verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the first of six verses we're going to cover this morning. And in these six verses, I want you to see four big truths. Each of these truths follow the same pattern. Something flows from something else. First, we see in verse 12 that new life, flows from embracing a new identity. New life flows from embracing a new identity, verse 12. You can see both bits there, can't you? New life and a new identity. First comes the new identity. You are those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. This is your new identity. You are chosen. You've been made holy. You are loved by God. And here is the new character that ought to flow from that new identity. Verse 12, as, because this is who you are, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's quickly see how those two elements fit together. Our identity is connected to our character. Paul says you have a new identity. If you're a Christian, if you've embraced this life of faith in Christ, you have a new identity, You are a chosen one. You are God's elect. You are his chosen people. Uh, It may have felt like you chose him, and you did, but God is always previous. He chose you first, and he tells you so. He chose you, and he made you holy. You are holy, verse 12. You are set apart for God. This is the new identity God has given you. You are holy and you are beloved. You're beloved by God himself. God loves you, Christian. And if you were to ever doubt that, just look at the cross. At the cross, Jesus abundantly demonstrated God's great love for you. This is how much he loves you. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, Jesus says. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You are loved greatly and at great sacrifice. And God wants you to know it. He wants you to know that you are loved, that you are holy, that you are chosen. He certainly wants you to believe those things because he has said them to you many, many times over in here. You're not just told once that you're loved, many times. You're not just told once that you're chosen, many times. You're not just called saints, holy ones, once. Many times he has said these things to you. Why? Because if we really grasp our new identity... It would change our lives. It would change the way we act. Now, we could think that being chosen, holy, and beloved would make us feel proud, self-righteous, and spoiled. That's probably what the world around us thinks. The world often assumes that we, Christians, think God picked us, much like a team captain picks the best players, for his team. And so we're all swelling with pride, the pride of being the chosen ones. Boy, God sure knew what he was doing when he picked me, let me tell you. Non-Christians probably assume that pride is, is our natural response to being chosen by God because probably it would be their response. And the false assumptions continue. The world hears the word holy, set apart, And assumes that those who take on that identity will surely be holier than thou. They will be self-righteous. Like the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story. Holy people won't cross the street to help a dying man because of the fear we might be sullied through contact, through contamination with a sinner. The natural assumption is that holiness is a category that repels But that's the holiness of the Pharisee, not Jesus. Jesus had a holiness which didn't repel. It attracted sinners to himself. Here again, the world can jump to a false conclusion. The world hears the word beloved and probably assumes that it gives Christians license to behave like spoiled, entitled children. We act like all the other children in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Being the beloved of the father who owns everything, you think we'd be another Veruca Salt, the beloved heiress who is a thoroughly spoiled, entitled child. But is that the way it is? You can see how all these assumptions are bent, aren't they? You begin with a new identity that you are chosen holy and beloved, but from there, you draw a bent line to false conclusions, to bad ends. From chosen, you draw a bent line to pride. From holy, you draw a bent line toward self-righteous. From beloved, you draw a bent line to entitled. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, shows us where all the straight lines go. Here are the real applications. Here is the actual way to connect the dots, revealing the true picture. If you really were to embrace this new identity, here is where it will lead you. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Far from putting on pride at being chosen, we put on compassion. We're called to put on kindness and humility, gentleness, and patience, because God didn't choose you like a team captain chooses his teammates. God didn't pick the best and the brightest. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians to consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise among you, not many noble, not many mighty, But God has chosen the foolish things. Look around. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The base things of the world. The despised things God has chosen. The things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. So that, you know what Paul says next? So that, why? No man may boast before God. Your heart will never swell with boastful pride if you remember this. God chose you not because of what you deserved, but in spite of what you deserved. You weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer when he chose you to be his instrument. You weren't the best of humanity. You weren't the brightest. You weren't the purest. You weren't the easiest clay for him to mold when God chose to make you into a vessel of his grace. Remember Paul's words from last week. Look up back up to verses 6 and 7. Because of all these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Jesus didn't come for those who were already walking well. Those who were already good enough in their own eyes. Jesus came for sinners. When we remember who we are and where we came from, it should naturally lead us to put on a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion toward the undeserving. Because we've been the objects of God's undeserving compassion. But for the grace of God, there go I also. I was on the same road toward destruction. When God graciously intervened and captured my heart. We put on a heart of compassion and a heart of kindness. See that? Verse 12. Kindness because our hearts are overwhelmed by God's kindness toward us. He was kind to us when our every thought, our every act was offensive to him. We put on a heart of kindness toward others and... We put on a heart of humility. Humility because our hearts should be forever blown away. That God would choose us. That God would choose me. That he would love us while we were his enemies. While we were unloving and unlovely, he loved us. Continually embracing these gospel realities keeps us grounded. And humble. We've put on a heart of humility and gentleness. You see that? Gentleness because our hearts have been yoked to one who is gentle and humble in heart. I see how gently Jesus deals with me, and in my gratitude, I also want to deal gently with others. And it's exactly the same when it comes to patience. When I see how patient God is with me, in an overflow of gratitude, I seek to show the same patience to others. This new way of life flows from embracing a new identity, that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. That's the first big truth. The next big truth is like unto it. New responses flow from believing a better story. Verse 13. New responses flow from believing a better story. Verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here's a story. Here's a better story. One that Jesus told. It's called The Parable of the Wicked Slave. I often reference this story because I am constantly applying it. If you don't know the story, I'll give you the cliff note version really quick. Jesus told the story of a slave who owed a great debt to his master, to the king. It was a ridiculous amount of money. He could never pay it back. His debts called in. He comes before the king. It's determined he's to go into debtor's prison until he can pay it off, everything he has to be sold. But he pleads and begs, please give me time, I will repay you everything. And the king, full of compassion, doesn't just say okay to that proposal. He forgives the debt completely. He wipes it away. But it seems like almost immediately the man who's forgiven walks out and sees a fellow slave who owes him a little bit of money, takes him by the throat, and says, pay me back what you owe me. Then, making the exact same speech that that slave just made, his heart is unmoved. He throws the man in prison until he pays back his debt. The king gets word of what happens and is rightly angry. He calls the servant in and says to him, was your heart so unmoved by the forgiveness that?" that I've shown you, that you will not forgive someone else. He throws that slave into prison and hands him over to the torturers until he repays back every last cent. Jesus finishes the story this way, leaving no doubt as to how we are to take it. He says this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Jesus leaves no room for misunderstanding. This is too important. We're meant to see ourselves in this story. We are the wicked, indebted slave who's been forgiven a mountain of debt, a mountain of sin. And then, how often do we go around holding petty grudges, failing to forgive others in light of the great grace we have been shown? We need to see ourselves as being caught up in a greater story. New responses, like bearing with one another, like forgiving each other, flow from believing you've been caught up in a story. A story in which God bears with you. A story in which your king forgives you. In your joy of receiving the king's full and free forgiveness, you now go and fully and freely forgive others. You bear with that brother. In our church family. Who is rough. Around the edges. Because Jesus bears with you. And your edges are far more rougher to him. You forgive that sister. Whose words were unkind. Because you were beholden to a king. Who has forgiven your harsh words. All your treasonous acts as your heart believes that all this has really happened to you, as your heart believes the good news of the gospel, new gospel-inspired responses will begin to take root in your heart. They have to. If you have been really moved by what God has done for you, it's, something has to change. Otherwise, we act like the wicked servant, having a heart that is completely unmoved by the grace we have received. Remember this, the next time you feel affronted or offended by someone here, remember the parable of the wicked slave. God calls you to bear with and forgive others just as he bears with and forgives you. New responses flow from believing a better story. That's verse 13. Let's look at verse 14 in our third point. Third point is this perfect unity flows from showing a real love. Verse 13, verse 14 perfect unity flows from showing a real love. Look with me, verse 14 says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In the 1930s and 40s, a group of Christian writers regularly met in a pub in Oxford. They referred to as the Bird and Baby. Its real name was the Eagle and Child, but I like the Bird and Baby. This group was called the Inklings, and it included scholars like C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield. These men were known by the other pub frequenters for their fierce debates. They saw many things differently. Literature, politics, social theory, you name it. They discussed and debated it. And they would often very passionately argue for their point of view with raised voices at one another. But at the end of the evening, they'd embrace and part as better friends. Why? Because they loved one another. Love is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the perfect relational glue. You don't have to agree on everything in order to be united if your love is large enough. Love covers over a multitude of sins, a multitude of disagreements, a multitude of offenses. You know this to be true, I'm sure, but I'll put the question to you Would you rather be with people you disagree with but love, or with people you agree with on everything? But there's no affection at all between you. Which marriage would you rather be in? I think we'd all say, I'd rather be with the one I love and who loves me. There is more unity in a room full of disagreement and mutual love than in a room where everyone is cold carbon copies of each other and feels nothing. Why is that? It's because perfect unity flows from showing real love. So, church, let's love one another. Love the person you most disagree with in this room. We can disagree ardently and still walk away better friends if we are certain in Christ of one another's love. Let's love one an- another So strongly and so clearly that we can speak hard truths. We can even passionately disagree and walk away better friends because our love for one another is beyond all doubt. That's verse 14. Let's look quickly at verses 15 through 17 and our final heading. Look at verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Three times in three verses, we are told to do one thing. Did you notice what it is? Three times in three verses, we are told to be thankful. Be thankful. Verse 15, peace of Christ to rule in your heart, and be thankful. Verse 16, the uh, word of God's richly dwelling with you within you, and it's coming out in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. Verse 17, whatever you're doing, you're to do all giving thanks through Jesus to the Father. Here is a final point and a last connection you need to see. You need to see this, that peace, worship, and purpose all flow from thanksgiving. Peace, worship, and purpose all flow from thanksgiving. I bet, experientially, you already know this to be true. When are you most at peace? When the peace of Christ is most reigning in your heart, what else is happening in that moment? When you are most at peace, don't you find also that your heart is the most thankful, the most grateful? Haven't you noticed that cultivating a contented, thankful heart naturally leads to Peace, peace of mind, peace of heart. Conversely, when I'm the most anxious, when I'm feeling the most overwhelmed, when I feel the most despairing, I can tell you one thing I'm not doing in that moment. I'm not being thankful. Because, like an unwanted guest, despair struggles to stay in an actively thankful heart. My worries have to flee whenever I am profoundly grateful. That's Thanksgiving's connection to peace. But what about worship? Verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's more going on in this verse than worship. But worship is certainly present in each element. Our intake of God's word, rightly seen, is an act of worship. Teaching, teaching one another, rightly seen, is an act of worship. When the word of Christ richly dwells in us, we can't help but spill it out of our hearts in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are acts of worship. And you know... When your worship of God is the sweetest? Isn't it when you are most profoundly thankful? Likewise, you know when your praise is the dullest. Isn't it when you're not feeling it? You're not feeling even the littlest bit grateful? People who are not thankful, people who feel more entitled than they do grateful, are not great worshipers of God. Entitled people find it very hard to look past themselves. But grateful people are constantly doing that. They're constantly looking up and enjoying the fountain from whom all blessings flow. That's Thanksgiving's connection to peace and worship. But what about purpose? Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. As with the chosen one motif, we all seem hardwired to want purpose. We want our lives to matter. We want our work to matter. We want the daily grind to count for something. That doesn't seem like evolutionary conditioning to me does it? Quite the opposite. It feels like the hardwiring of a designer at work in humanity. We feel the need for purpose because God created us for a purpose. He created us to find our ultimate purpose in Him and in Him alone. God says in Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I have created for my glory. God made us for his glory, and we won't find a full and satisfying purpose for our lives anywhere else. Nothing else has enough mass to it. The glory of God dwarfs everything else like the sheer mass of the sun dwarfs everything else in the solar system. You try to put any of the planets, any other purpose at the center of the solar system, it doesn't work. It doesn't have enough mass to hold all the other things in their proper place. God designed humanity's solar system to revolve around the most weighty thing in the universe. Himself. His glory. He has made it where everything we do. Reading, cooking, exercising, parenting, working can be done intentionally for His glory. Every little thing we do can be caught up in the greater purpose of the universe, which is the glory of God. How do we do that, you might ask? What does it look like to eat and drink, to work and play To the glory of God. Paul tells us what that looks like in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In other words, you've got to do that thing you do with thankfulness, with thankfulness in your heart to God. You've got to engage in that activity with a heart that is actively grateful to God through Jesus Christ. This should be the reason why you pray before meals. In our family, I ask before mealtime, who is going to give thanks? Give thanks. Because that's what we're doing. We're thankful to God for what we're about to enjoy. And our thankfulness is voiced in prayer, to the Father, in Jesus' name. Our thankfulness at mealtime comes through Jesus. It comes because of Jesus. Jesus has made all things clean. And that's why we can savor these bacon-wrapped green beans. To the glory of God. Amen. I think you already know from experience that when you engage in something with thankfulness in your heart to Jesus that you are doing that thing as it is intended. In the world to come, this is how we will do everything. With hearts overflowing with gratitude to God through Christ. Why wouldn't you start practicing that now? Why wouldn't you bring a bit of heaven to earth now? Bring a bit of heaven's employment and work into your earthly work. Doing it all for the glory of God with thankfulness and gratitude in your heart through Jesus. You'll enjoy food more. You'll enjoy work more. You'll enjoy your hobbies more. You'll enjoy sex more when you engage in them all with thankful hearts to God. When you connect all that you do back to Jesus, you'll enjoy all things more and your life will find its real purpose. Everything is now meaningful, eternally meaningful. Give a cup of cold water in Christ's name. You will surely not lose your reward. That act, that small act is eternally meaningful. And all this begins with and flows from a thankful heart. Thanksgiving Day is just around the corner. But for you, Christian, every day is Thanksgiving. Every day is a day to give thanks and be profoundly grateful because you are chosen. You are holy. You are beloved. This day And every day hereafter. I think the reason we keep telling ourselves stories about the chosen one. Is ultimately because it's true. It's a reflection of the truth. You are chosen. Christian, you have a greater destiny than you can possibly imagine. You, who were more spiritually bankrupt and poor than Charlie Bucket. You have been chosen to inherit a paradise far, far better than a chocolate factory. A new world created by a mind and imagination infinitely superior to Willy Wonka. And like Willy Wonka asked Charlie, I imagine God asked us do you know what happened to the boy who suddenly got everything he ever wanted? He lived happily ever after. Church, the stories we love and keep telling have more truth in them than we know. Father, impress your word and your truth upon our hearts. Impress this new identity you have given us upon us so deeply that it changes the way we act. That it fills our hearts with compassion, with kindness, and love, and gentleness, and humility. Change us, Lord. Refine us by causing us to see our place in the great story. The story you are telling. May we all find our place in Jesus. And may, may we all find our purpose in him. May we do all that we do to his glory with thankfulness. Filling our hearts day by day and moment by moment.